It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. It is the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Coming to you a little bit later than usual. That's because I've had some radio work going on in Seattle at KTTH. So glad to be with you and thank you for joining us. I've got some amazing stuff in this program, this show, this program today. And I don't think you're going to get this anywhere else. This is amazing, simply amazing. We have an update on the Capitol Hill riot case, the Capitol building riot case, the so-called riot that happened. I'm starting to put little uh, scare quotes around the term riot. Some of it was clearly out of control. Other parts of it, not so much. We're going to talk to Julie Kelly about that very thing coming up in just a few minutes. Also, the latest on the Derek Chauvin case, that, of course, is the George Floyd case. And you are hearing things you've never heard before in that case. Uh, You've heard that the drug dealer was inside the van with George Floyd. His girlfriend said it on the stand. A man cries out because he's sad that George Floyd is calling for his mother because he thinks he's dying after the police take him out of the back of the police car to let him breathe. And he's feeling horrible. Why? Probably because he's dying due to drugs. Just horrible. Just a series of horrible events. But first, I wanted to start out about these Chinese social credit scores that are going ongoing in China. And the reason I bring it up is because, as I wrote in PJ Media, these vaccine passports they're talking about, the COVID, let's just call them the COVID passports. Um, I'm just going to start calling them that because if you call them a vaccine passport, it connotes that the mRNA shot is actually a vaccine, which it technically is not. It's a way to do some um, a gene therapy or what have you to forestall uh, the um, the disease, COVID. Um, so I, I technically don't think that's a vaccine, is it? But be that as it may. So they're rolling this out. There is an interagency committee in the highest levels of government to determine how this vaccine or COVID passport would work. And what we've heard is that they're going to outsource this to big tech. You know, the same people who have been censoring conservatives for literally years now, throwing off Donald Trump from uh, several platforms, this is the same people are going to oversee the the uh, COVID passport. Really? Well, let me tell you something. I, I spent some time on this the other day for PJ Media. I've written several stories about the so-called passport that the Biden administration is uh, countenancing, it's considering, and they will do it. They'll try to do it unless we stop it. And I believe we should. And I want you to believe that, too, so that you'll do something about it and flood your legislators with notes, letters, phone calls, and tell them to don't you even think about it. Passport sounds like a continuation of Obamacare, which is what my opinion is because of what Obamacare did. But 
hitting all parts of society, according to Andy Slavitt, who is in charge of the Medicare and Medicaid services. He says this is going to hit all parts of society, this vaccine, or rather this passport. And so naturally the government is involved, but as uh, Jen Psaki said, they're outsourcing it to big tech. So as I say, it sounds like a continuation of Obamacare hitting all aspects of society to gain compliance, gain compliance. Compliance for what? Well, the stated objective is to get people to get the shot. But I ask you the question at this juncture and I ask you if we are, as we, I believe we are, on the downhill trend for this disease and if they had to go to Uh, If we're on the downhill trend, let's just start there. Why are we doing this now? We've been wearing masks. We've been socially distancing. We've been still taking trains and planes. And we've gone in rides and cars. And even the cruise industry is starting to fire back up. Why would we need a vaccine passport? Why would we need a COVID passport if we already have access to this? And I'll tell you why. It's because they want to be able to extract compliance from you in other areas. And I ain't making this up because they are taking their cues from, and I know this sounds a little wacky, the Chinese social credit system, which all of big tech already helps them do. You know, Google's all involved in that. They're all involved in that. And then, and so here we have it. Same Google going to have to help do it in this country. What is do it? Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. But first, a little background. So New York Magazine reports that the passport would be wide in scope. Proof of vaccination, they report, may be a critical driver for restoring baseline health and promoting safe return to social, commercial, and leisure activities. There's also some focus group evidence, they say, that vaccine passports could help convince Americans who do not want to get inoculated to sign up for a shot. Why? If we don't need it. If you do need it, great. You, If you are in a very com- uh, compromised health position, you should get the you should get it. If you're not of procreative age. Yeah, I guess that's a word. <laughs> don't get it yet. You're too young anyway. You don't need it. But as I I wrote over at PJ Media, author Naomi Wolf, she's a feminist. She's a liberal. She's not a leftist per se, although she does have leftist tendencies, as does Glenn Greenwald, who shares her her very dim view of this. But when you're a liberty lover, it doesn't matter what political party you are or what you call yourself. If you believe in the Constitution, you know This vaccine thing, this COVID passport, is really bad news. I mean, really, really bad news. And you should not let it happen. Why? Well, check this out. So I I just went over it. I just looked up all the stuff. I found out how China does its social credit system, which is what this is a precursor of. Naomi Wolf says that this will be used to ladle on other 
kinds of checks and balances on the American public. And you might say, well, so what, Victoria? Everyone has information on me anyway. No, they don't. Not to this extent. And not with the intention of penalizing you if you don't match their standards. And there is the rub, because they will. The same scolds who tell you that you must wear a mask, the same scolds who say we should be cramming ourselves in these small houses in the winter, the same scolds who say that we should be driving a different car, we should be turning our lights off, not use our electricity and other energies, are going to be the same people who will come after you and be able to dictate whether or not you have a compliance score that meets their approval. And you know it, and I know it. That's exactly what's going to happen. I've never been sure of anything more than this, especially since we have all of these huge expenditure bills, these huge tax increases now during COVID, right? Oh, I thought we were on our heels and everything. No, we're going to have tax increases. At the same time, we're handing out money by the fistful to people in the United States. That makes no sense. They're buying your compliance. Use that to get out and get your own great reset. But so the pandemic vaccine passport is being proposed and it divides people in, uh, I believe this is what's going to happen with ours, right? And it divides people into trustworthy people and untrustworthy people. And China's rulers and the Communist Party rolled this out, started rolling it out, announced it in 2014, and since then have been rolling it out in different regions of China. And now 2020, it went countrywide. Billion point five people. That's a lot of people. They can keep a lot of people under surveillance, and they can. How do they keep these social credit scores that I'm going to tell you about? Well, I can tell you a couple of things. They have multiple databases that generate information on people, like a credit score information thing, but for different areas of your life. How much energy do you use? Are you in trouble with the law? And they put it together on these databases and they come up with your social credit score. And I'll tell you specifically what those things are. But let me just tell you this. Some of the ways in which they keep track of you are uh, the 200 million with an M million closed circuit cameras that are all over China with facial recognition technology to be able to keep track of what those people are doing. So if you jaywalk, this is an actual issue in the social credit score in China. If you jaywalk, you get docked points on your social credit score. I have a whole list. And in fact, if you want this infographic that I found in a scholarly publication, I can't, I couldn't put it in my story because I didn't have permission, but you know, individuals can use it, right? So if you want a copy of that, get in touch with me. Go over to victoriataft.com or email me victoria at victoriataft.com and I will send you a copy of it. Here's some of what it says. Now, 
people on the Chinese credit score start out with 1,000 points. You can get up to 1,300 points. What do you have to do to get up to 13 points or 1,300 points? Do a hell of a lot of apple polishing for the PRC's CRP. Taking care of elderly family members will help get you somewhere. Engaging in charitable work. So they want to be in charge of your charitable instincts. You will no longer. It's sort of like how charity, how government has taken over charity in this country. We have NGOs and charities and, and uh, you know, secular charities and, and things that have taken over the roles of what the church has done in the past. And, and uh, food banks and all that stuff. Well, the churches used to do all that. Now the, now the country, the government does all that, depriving you, I believe, of the ability the desire and how good it makes you feel. And yes, that's okay to feel really good because you've helped people. The government wants to be in charge of that. And indeed, that's what they're doing in China. And they'll give you points for it. They will take it. They'll just steal your joy. Uh, If you get traffic offenses such as drunk driving or jaywalking, you get docked points. If you illegally, quote, end quote, protest against authorities, you get docked points. Not visiting your aged parents regularly will dock you points. How would they know? Because people are snitching on you and there's the the cameras all over the place. There's gas usage. How did you get there? Um, then you can all go all the way down to 600 points. I don't know what they do to you below 600, except I know you can't leave the country if it's really bad. I mean, think about that. Think about that. High scores can lead to priority for school admissions, easier access to cash loans, consumer credit, deposit-free bicycle or car hire, free gym facilities, cheaper public transport, shorter wait times at hospitals. Think about that. Shorter wait times at hospitals. What if you are an undesirable? What if you happen to be those people who are untrustworthy, and you're dying. Oh, I'm sorry. If somebody comes in with a better social credit score than you, you're put on the sidelines, man. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, there's more, but I wanted to let you hear what author and liberal... And now they're calling her a conspiracy theorist. Uh, the Wikipedia folks are calling her a conspiracy theorist, Naomi Wolf. Why? Because she parts company with the far left on COVID. And she's right. And they're wrong. So listen to what she said recently in an interview of, in, of all places, Fox News. I am not overstating this. I can't say it forcefully enough. This is literally the end of human liberty in the West if this plan unfolds as planned. Vaccine passport sounds like a fine thing if you don't understand what those platforms can do. I'm CEO of a tech company. I understand what this platform does. It's not about the vaccine. It's not about the virus. It's about your data. And once this rolls out, you don't have a choice about being part of the system. What people have to understand is that 
any other functionality can be loaded onto that platform mm. with no problem at all. And what that means is um, it can be merged with your PayPal account, with your digital currency. Microsoft uh, is already talking about merging it with um, payment plans. Your uh, networks can be sucked up. It geolocates you everywhere you go. Your credit history can be included. All of your medical history can be included. This has already happened in Israel. Yeah. And six months later, later, we're hearing from activists that it's a two-tier society and that basically activists are ostracized and surveilled continually. It's the end of civil society. And they're trying to roll it out around the world. And it is absolutely so much more than a vaccine pass. It is, it, I cannot stress yes. enough that it has the power to turn off your life or to turn on your life, to let you engage in society or be marginalized. And by the way, the last thing I'll say, IBM has a horrible history uh, with Nazi yes. Germany. Its subsidiary created a kind of precursor of this with punch cards that allowed the Nazis to keep lists of, again, a two-tiered society, Aryan and Jew, in such a way that they could round up Jews, round up dissidents, round up opposition leaders very, very quickly. It's catastrophic. It it cannot be allowed to continue. It's a mind blower. She's absolutely right. They can steal your life from you. They can turn it on. They can turn it off. And I'll tell you how, because I've got the list. I've got the list of what China does. And this is exactly what's going to happen. Can you imagine the shorter wait times at hospitals? Fast track promotion at work. Your kids can get into private schools. Conversely, if your score is not good enough, you cannot get in your kids into private schools. You could jump the queue for public housing if you have a good social credit score. Get tax breaks if you have a good social credit score. And here's what gets you in trouble. Posting anti-government messages on social media. Isn't that what we're doing now? Docking people for censoring them for putting messages on social media that do not comport with the great mindset of the big tech and leftist oligarchies uh, overseeing the United States. I started just put government and billionaires together. You know what I mean? Spreading rumors on the Internet. Facebook, anyone? Censoring the president, anyone? Insincere apologies for crimes committed. Participating in anything deemed to be a cult. In China, Christianity is considered to be a cult. Hello? Cheating in online games. Cheating in online games. And then, of course, you've got lots of witnesses and it's somewhere on somebody's database. They're all on databases. And these punishments, if you do any of those things and plus more, here's what, you, what can happen to you. Denial of licenses, permits, access to some social services, exclusion from booking flights or high-speed train tickets. Let me just put a finer point on that. They would do that in the United... In fact... They would do that in the United States because they are doing that in the United States. That's the whole point of these. I'm sorry, you can't travel if you haven't had your COVID shot yet. It doesn't, you don't need the COVID shot. You may want the COVID shot for people of a particular uh, physical makeup. Great, go get it. Do it. My husband got it. But 
you shouldn't make that the key thing to allow, quote unquote, somebody to freely move about the country. It's freedom of movement. I mean, it's just annoying. It's it's astonishing. And that's what their first, their very first thing is. Do you hear that Canada? Canada is locking people up. Oh, Canada is locking people up when they come from overseas. And they say, well, you know, you have to have a COVID test within three days of coming. And this one guy had a COVID test. They locked him up and then they're charging him for the worst of the worst hotel room. They've taken over entire hotel rooms, hotels to put these quarantine people in. They've locked them up, locked them. They can't leave. Hotel California. Welcome to the Hotel Canada. Uh, Let's see, what else can they do? Um, Let's see. Ineligible for government jobs. Gosh, I can't imagine why someone would need a job with the government that runs the place. Everything's, isn't everything a government job? Your kids can't go to school. I mean, the nicest school. They'll send you to the gulag school. I'm just making that up. I didn't, they don't call it the gulag school. Of course they don't. Uh, no access to private schools. Public shaming. They actually have places where your name shows up in a name and shame database and TV screens around the country because they have so many TV screens. Uh, public sh- uh, shaming exposure, either online or TV screens in public spaces of the names, photos, ID numbers of blacklisted citizens, phone dial tones, phone dial tones mandated by authorities that inform people they are calling a dishonest debtor. I imagine they, those phone those phone tones probably appear for other reasons as well. Oh, let me see my other stats. I'll check this out. So I did this for PJ Media. Now, This is interesting. China's National Public Credit Information Center released a report recently, 2019. So these numbers are huge, even bigger now. It stopped 17.5 million people from buying airplane tickets and 5.5 million people from hopping on a train because they had a low credit score. Another 290,000 people were stopped from getting a high-paying senior job, and 128 people couldn't leave the country because they hadn't yet paid their taxes, which include fines for being on the low end of the social credit scores. Now, that was 2018 numbers. Do you think things might have gotten worse? Can you imagine a scenario under which we might find ourselves in the United States of America in which someone would ladle on yet another bit of uh, information, another database, another something onto the platform for this COVID passport, such as do they comply with the Green New Deal that they're trying to pass in that infrastructure bill, the highest tax increase in the country's history? Can you imagine a scenario under which you might lose points for having a gas guzzler 
paying for extra supercharged gasoline, not getting a an electric car. Can you imagine that? Perhaps running your air conditioning too much? How much water are you using? If you don't imagine a scenario under which that would happen in the United States of America, I refer you to reality. I'd say I can refer you to any number of things, but it'll sound like I'm a tinfoil hat wearing person. And I frankly don't want, I want you to hear this. I don't want you to turn me off because you think, oh, come on. No, this is true. This is really true. You know, and I've lost so much faith, so much faith in the jurisprudence area of this country. I mean, I, I mean, come on, you've got the Justice Department and the CIA combining forces to oppose a president by leaking a fake story that they ate up like it was Sunday dinner with fried chicken and mashed potatoes, saying that the president of the United States was a Russian secret agent. And nobody stopped and said, what? Nobody in the mainstream media. Oh, well, you know, that that sounds pretty true. I'm sure we can't... uh, we can't verify it, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got Mueller looking into it. Yeah, two years of nothing. The guy knew within the first month he, this was nothing, but he kept it up, kept getting a paycheck, kept putting out those people on the, on the scene so that they could drag Donald Trump into the mud. Now, you may not like Donald Trump, but I'll bet you two more months of Joe Biden, you're going to go, what happened? I miss Donald Trump. Because when they get this infrastructure thing going, this is going to be interesting. Maybe I'll flesh that out in our next our next visit together. But I, I'm concerned about it. And I've seen why we should be concerned about justice in America. And I talked to Julie Kelly about this. She is a reporter at American Greatness, and I mean, I wish I were on this beat, and I can be, and in fact, I have, certainly on this podcast and occasionally over at PJ Media. She is following the cases of the 300 people who were arrested at the Capitol Hill riot. The Capitol complex, the building where people just, some of them broke into it. One person was shot to death doing it. There were no armed insurgents that they'd like to tell you. Nope, there weren't. But um, there were people who trespassed. Then there were all kinds of folks who have been in prison prison since they were arrested in January. And their lives are ruined. For what? And you're going to find out. Even Politico admits the vast majority, a large, okay, well, let me say, a large percentage of people arrested that day will never see a jail term. That's like trespassing. Some of the stuff's trespassing. The cops let them in. And you know, and I know, I was really outraged about that riot. It was such a colossally terrible thing that day. I think Trump waited way too long to say anything about it. And I'm not sure to what extent he knew about all of what was going on, but he waited too long to say anything. People were absolutely showing unalloyed rage over it. And they should have. But furthermore, you know, a lot of people were upset about the election. And now we, of course, are trickling information. We find out over and over and over 
why they were. We're finally getting some a little justice in the courtroom and the state legislatures, etc. But here's Julie Kelly. Now, you know about the case of the zip tie guy. Remember, we've heard all about the zip tie guy. She's got an update on that. She's also got an update on the so-called Oath Keepers, the conspiracy theorists, who some of whom never were conspiracy theorists and went in there and they were in charge of the the vast uh, insurrection and never bothered to go in. So people are caught in the crosshairs and the feds are absolutely wreaking injustice in this case. So I'm on both sides. Bad idea to go in, obviously. I believe there's election chicanery. Absolutely. And I think I think that's what you're seeing in Georgia right now. The reaction of the Georgia legislature after the Georgia legislature and the governor signed into law ID for absentee voters. Fewer of these drop boxes for mail in ballots. And they are going apoplectic. Do you realize that five minutes ago in Georgia, they weren't doing any of the changes that in the law that they made simply for the 2020 election, which won the election for Joe Biden? If they had done none of that supposed, quote unquote, COVID stuff, Donald Trump would still be in the White House. Trust me. So, yeah, some of it was legal. Some of it was not. We're finding out. And it'll be trickling out over the next few years, I imagine, what happened that day. But here's Julie Kelly telling us about what happened to the people involved. So what do we know about the Capitol riot cases so far? You write in your latest at American Greatness about the zip tie guy at the so-called insurrection. So thanks for having me on, Victoria. Um, What happened was the media and the Democrats and a lot of Republicans right away described what happened on January 6th as an insurrection. Um, And so that already had set a pretty high bar for prosecutors. The DOJ, of course, went along with it because it is a wholly corrupt agency that is uh, really become more of a uh, Democrat, uh, the law enforcement arm for the Democratic Party rather than for all the people of the United States. And so you had prosecutors come out right away and say that they were going to build sedition cases against American citizens based on misdemeanor charges. Um, and so now we are here almost three months later and seeing that it's not quite as easy as a lot of the top prosecutors thought it would be to charge regular Americans for sedition uh, for nonviolent crimes. Everyone remembers the iconic photograph of the man in the Senate gallery holding a fistful of zip ties. So what we were told originally, Victoria, you've seen this, especially if you're following my reporting, basically everything we were told from the beginning, how Officer Sicknick died, that it was an armed insurrection, that people's lives were threatened, um, etc., did not was not true. The zip tie guy is another example. What happened was for some reason, Capitol Police left stashes of zip ties, uh, which are really flex cuffs, uh, around the Capitol building. He grabbed some of those and 
oddly, there was a photographer there to take a picture. So mm, I know, such a coincidence. So he did not bring the zip ties in to arrest Mike Pence and haul him out of the uh, Capitol building. They were already there. Um, and they uh, and started investigating Eric Munchell and his mother, who is the woman photographed with him. Uh, they turned themselves into law enforcement around January 12th, January 16th. They were taken into custody. They remained in jail like a lot of these uh, defenders. defendants have been um, judges and prosecutors agreeing to pretrial detention and uh, transported from their home in Tennessee to Washington, D.C., where they've remained in jail until last week. The D.C. Appellate Court thankfully challenged both the prosecutors and the judge who can, who wanted them to stay in jail pending their trial, and um, the government immediately then dropped their motion uh, for detention. So nothing felonious to keep these people jailed on. That's right. Um, you had a teenager, as I wrote about a high school senior who was arrested in Georgia, held a uh, denied bond. His family could not try to get him out of jail. Uh, and actually, they are using the thought crime of these people, these Americans not believing that the 2020 election was legitimate, that Joe Biden is not uh, the legitimately elected president, which I is shared by tens of millions of Americans, by the way. And now that we're seeing all of this election fraud actually get a fair hearing, not, of course, in the courts, but actually in state legislatures, et cetera, um, there are still a lot of unanswered questions about what happened last year. But you see prosecutors using, even in, in, in charging documents, that the fact that, say, a teenager attended a Stop the Steal rally with his parents, not only is he a threat to society, but so are his parents. Um, and this happened also with the zip tie guy and his mother. They have not been charged, though, with any violent crime, and that was uh, really a, a really important point that one of the judges made, is that they were not only nonviolent criminals, nonviolent offenders, um, they actually were trying to help law enforcement that day. But it doesn't matter, Victoria, because these people's lives are already destroyed, and that's exactly what the Justice Department wants. And it's really sad that not only are no really other journalists covering this, but we've heard deafening, deafening silence from the Republican Party. And actually, Donald Trump finally made mention of it last week in his interview with Laura Ingram. But look, he's been silent for two and a half months as this has been going on. Many others have been vilified, such as the Oath Keepers who were at the Capitol that day. Those, those cases are falling apart as well, aren't they? And this is, thanks for bringing this up. A really egregious case. Let me tell you something, Victoria. Going through these charging documents, going through the defense lawyers, you know, defending their clients, so many of these people, I feel sorry for them. Um, they're more a source of compassion than of contempt. And I feel that way about the Oath Keepers. These are all, for, these are all veterans. They are all former soldiers. Um, the one man, 66-year-old disabled veteran, who they accused of being a co-conspirator, a leader of the Oath Keepers, um, was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. Uh, he has 100% service-related disabilities. He had another surgery on his back last year. Because his injuries are so bad, he couldn't even try to go into the Capitol building. Yet here, this is another man that they arrested and held without bond, deeming him a threat to society. For, for what? 
because he doesn't believe that Joe Biden was was legitimately elected. The Oath Keepers are being charged now, 10 of them, with conspiracy. Um, again, no violent crimes. None of them brought a weapon anywhere. They uh, didn't bring, they didn't even possess a weapon, let alone use one. They didn't assault any police officers. They didn't vandalize any property. They didn't leave so much as a mark inside the Capitol. But here are 10 of them, not just being charged with conspiracy, but now being accused of top law enforcement officials as being domestic violent violent extremists. Um, and so that's a case that I will continue to cover. Fortunately, after this ruling from the D.C. appellate court that applied to the zip tie guy and his mother, the judge in D.C. who's overseeing a lot of these cases released three or four Oath Keepers who have been uh, incarcerated since mid-late January uh, pending trial. Also, Victoria, their trial has been delayed another 60 days. So we are violating every constitutional protection that Americans are entitled to simply for the fact that they they disagree with the groupthink, the political groupthink. Now that was a violation of the speedy trial right, but a judge granted a motion to do that, right? They did. They did. The prosecutors asked the judge to, and it was the same judge actually who just let three or four of them go, um, uh, allow them to violate the Speedy Trial Act. And the judge said, we will give another 60-day continuance. This was around mid-March because justice is more important than the rights of the defendant. He actually wrote that in his ruling. What? Yes. That's it's in stunning. one of my articles. Yeah, it, the whole thing is stunning. I, and I've only scratched the surface. I mean, <laughs> to the extent that you know you, you're one person really trying to to do this job. But I, I have been enraged at what I've read. Um, here's another example about the Oath Keepers. Uh, one of the prosecutors in arguing to keep Jessica Wat- Watkins, who is one of the Oath Keepers being charged, to keep her um, incarcerated, they argued that because they've destroyed her life, she will be a greater threat. And they actually mocked her, saying she's lost her cherished firearms, she's lost her livelihood, she's lost the lease on her business. They went through the whole thing that they've done to this woman, who's an Afghanistan veteran, by the way, and said, because they've they've taken all these things from her, um, she will be a a threat to society. It's it's mind-blowing. All in all, even Politico seems to think these cases are falling apart at the seams for the federal government. Um, I think that they're recognizing Politico, and there was also a report in the Associated Press, and I believe Reuters, kind of setting the groundwork to diminish people's hopes about what's going to come out of this investigation. And this is something I pointed out several weeks ago when I started looking at the cases, that these are misdemeanor charges. They've set a very high bar then to build those into sedition cases, which is what Michael Sherwin the U.S. attorney who led the first two months of this probe had promised. Um, But there's also concern about another charge that I've written about called obstruction of an official proceeding. More than 130 people have been charged with that. It's an enhancement felony to add to mostly misdemeanor charges for these defendants. But Politico pointed out that this could, if anyone is convicted of this, it will send a really chilling message. It will codify basically criminalized political protest. So what they said is if somebody interrupts the CIA confirmation or the State of the Union or any other official proceeding, 
that they can be charged with this felony. Now, you know, Victoria, we saw this just two and a half years ago with the confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh. Not only did thousands of people occupy the Hart Senate office building when they were considering confirming Brett Kavanaugh, you had people really getting in the face of U.S. senators far more threatening than what happened on January 6th. So they've created quite a nest for themselves. And I have to say, a big part of me is gratified trying to watch them wind their way out of what they've created. They're really threading the needle on this. And people who didn't go into the Capitol building have been charged with trespass and other charges, right? That is true. Um, what they did, Victoria, is they set off this restricted area outside of the Capitol. So they're charging people who didn't even enter the Capitol building with trespassing on a restricted area. Now, knowing what was going to happen that day, the president was speaking. How can you restrict an area to what used to be called the People's House? It's not the People's House. I guess it's just the Pelosi House. She sets all the rules and all the new laws. And so um, that was one thing people who didn't even enter the building have been charged with disorderly conduct and trespassing too. And in the case of the Georgia teenager, when they interrogated his father um, and they were desperately trying to get their son released out of jail, they transported him from uh, Georgia to Oklahoma to keep him incarcerated. Um, Prosecutors threatened to also charged the parents because as he was explaining what happened that day, he told them that apparently, I guess, that he had been unknowingly in this restricted area waiting for their son to come out of the building. So they even threatened to charge the parents as well. Um, This is, you know, this is not even banana republic stuff. I mean, you know, for all this, all the talk about Vladimir Putin, I mean, he would be envious of the stuff that our Justice Department is getting away with right now. I mean, it's really stunning. What's happening with the Bruno Kua case that we talked about the last time, the 18-year-old who was put in the slammer? Um, So he was finally released from jail. He spent most of his time in solitary confinement. He was attacked by an inmate in the Oklahoma jail where he was sent. And finally, I guess mercifully, he contracted covid And so one of the judges uh, uh, released him uh, back to his parents, which the prosecutors also fought, and get this, because um, they're homeschoolers. Now, this is, you know, they live on a farm in Georgia. Because they homeschool their children, um, this was a word used by one of the prosecutors, Um, uh, Bruno Kua ingested his parents' political beliefs Uh, through homeschooling, and they therefore could not be trusted to be proper guardians of him. Um, But the judge did let him go home. Unbelievable. Stunning. Yes. What other cases should we watch for? Well, the Oath Keepers is definitely one. Um, You know, I'll continue to track what's happening with the zip tie guy. It's sort of like you could just throw a dart at these 300 cases and you could find really egregious prosecutorial uh, overreach and abuse and what's happening. So that, but I I am working on a story about um, how many veterans were involved that day, why so many veterans were there, and obviously their justification at being disillusioned and really disgusted at the government that they uh, took an oath to protect. So I think that that's an interesting thing, especially now, you know, Victoria, that they're promising to root out extremists in the military. Well, you know, maybe you created some extremists while you were at it. Yeah, I've heard people say that, and I'm wondering if they're right. (laughs) Now watch that space, because this is a huge case. In fact, there are 300 huge cases involved here. 
you have not seen injustice until you've had a, a judge write in a response to a motion and granting a motion that justice is more important than an individual's civil rights. Allow me to explain. Justice is an American civil rights. It's that's a mind blower, isn't it? Can you imagine a judge saying that? It's crazy. It's just nuts. The other case, the riot waiting to happen. Probably whatever happens in the George Floyd case. We're finding out more things about what George Floyd did the day he died, such as sitting in a van with his uh, his drug dealers, uh, multiple, ingesting a bunch of drugs, not being able to breathe. Why? Before the hold, before anything happened to him by the cops, they were just rolling him up and he was like sucking all the fentanyl down. That's what killed him, probably. I'm not saying what the... Uh, Chauvin did was right. I I really haven't been satisfied about that yet. It is a legal police hold. So, but as Andrew Branca of Legal Insurrection website, which is a fantastic website, and he's an attorney, he's a use of force attorney, he's also a self-defense attorney, and he told me that this case is the most emotional case he's ever seen. Why? Because that's all the prosecution has. Now watch that space, because this is a huge case. In fact, there are 300 huge cases involved here. You have not seen injustice until you've had a a judge write in a response to a motion and granting a motion that justice is more important than an individual's civil rights. Allow me to explain Justice is an American civil rights. It's that's a mind blower, isn't it? Can you imagine a judge saying that? It's crazy. It's just nuts. The other case, the riot waiting to happen. Probably whatever happens in the George Floyd case. We're finding out more things about what George Floyd did the day he died, such as sitting in a van with his uh, his drug dealers, uh, multiple ingesting a bunch of drugs, not being able to breathe. Why? Before the hold, before anything happened to him by the cops, they were just rolling him up and he was like sucking all the fentanyl down. That's what killed him, probably. I'm not saying what the uh, Chauvin did was right. I, I really haven't been satisfied about that yet. It is a legal police hold. So, but as Andrew Branca of Legal Insurrection website, which is a fantastic website. And he's an attorney. He's a use of force attorney. He's also a self-defense attorney. And he told me that this case is the most emotional case he's ever seen. Why? Because that's all the prosecution has. So tell us, if you can, what's happened so far in the trial with respect to opening arguments and, in fact, even jury selection. Specifically, do we have a hanging jury? Well, it's impossible to know with any certainty, of course, but I did watch every minute of jury selection. I think, uh, I think it's very likely we'll end up with a hung jury. Uh, we have 12 people who will ultimately be the jurors deliberating. I think convincing all 12 one way or or the other could prove extraordinarily difficult. Certainly at the point where they were seated as jurors, 
Um, there's been a year or so of, uh, of really hard propaganda around this case all that time. And I can tell you from my personal experience working these kinds of high-profile cases where you expose people to enough propaganda long enough, that becomes their reality. It can be very difficult to push them off that position they've emotionally invested themselves in. But that's what the defense has to do here and do it for every one of those jurors. The good news, of course, is uh, they don't have to... Um, the burden's actually on the prosecution, naturally. So the, the prosecution does have to convince the jurors beyond a reasonable doubt. But all it would take is one juror to stick to their emotional position on this case to end up without a verdict and to end up with a hung jury. The prosecutors in the case are not regular prosecutors. They're white shoe trial attorneys. Tell us a little bit about how they're doing in this case and if you think it's fair. Well, nothing about the system is actually supposed to be fair. Uh, this is an <laughs> administrative bureaucracy. It's not, it's not a system for fairness. You can't really have fairness unless you know the truth, and nobody ever really knows the truth in an absolute sense. Um, all we can do is make reasonable inferences from the, from the evidence. Uh, the prosecutors here are clearly, anyone who's watched them work, even if you didn't know anything about their backgrounds, are, uh, are very top-shelf, world-class attorneys. They are extremely good, and there's a lot of them. Uh, there's 10 or 12 of them. It's hard to know because they keep rotating the team around. And not all of them, of course, appear in court on camera. Uh, but it's a pretty big team. And as you note, these are not regular state prosecutors. These are, are hand-picked elite attorneys that have been brought onto this case uh, by Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. Um, now, having said that, I think they have a real challenge before them. I, I don't think uh, either the uh, the evidence or the law is, in fact, in favorable for a conviction. There is, however, a lot of emotion around the case that is arguably favorable for conviction. And, you know, there's an old cliche in the law um, that if the facts are on your side, you pound the facts. And if the law is on your side, you pound the law. And if neither is on your side, you pound the table. You turn to emotion. Uh, and it appears to me that's what the prosecutors here have been obliged to do. I'm sure that's not their choice. I'm sure they wish the law and evidence was actually in their favor. Uh, but it does not appear to be the case, certainly not through this first couple of days of the prosecution presenting its case in chief uh, with, uh, I think we've been through four or five or six witnesses at this point. Wow. I don't see a compelling argument for conviction based on evidence or law at this point. Let's just back up for a second to one of the argumentative witnesses, the medical per or the uh, firefighter for just a second to talk a little bit about her testimony. And you talked about it being related to emotionalism that is being used as the linchpin, if you will, of this case. And I want to find out a little bit of information about this witness and what it was that she did on the witness stand that gained the uh, anger of the, the, the judge. Well, the reason she got chastised by Judge Cahill was because on cross-examination by the defense, she was extremely uh, hostile and non-cooperative. Um, for example, when asked if she had made certain statements to police investigators after the event, she said she couldn't remember. When offered the transcript of that police interview to refresh her recollection, she said she didn't want to look at it. Uh, when she was compelled to look at it, uh, she had to acknowledge then that, in fact, she made the statement the police alleged. Uh, and her statement was that George Floyd appeared to be a small person. He was, in fact, a very, very large person. Uh, but she didn't like her testimony being impeached. So she began to basically run over the defense actual questions and provide all kinds of irrelevant context to <laughs> rationalize her response, which is 
not how things work in a courtroom. Uh, the judge told her not to do it. She did it again. She did it again. The judge was compelled to excuse the jury from the courtroom, chastise her, and she got argumentative with the judge. Pro tip, folks, don't get argumentative with the judge. He does not like it. <laughs> There was also something you mentioned over at Legal Insurrection, which is doing a great job. You are over there at um, talking about this case. And a guy brought in his notes and then kept referring to his notes, which are fine, except uh, the defense attorney in this case, Chauvin's defense attorney, didn't make too big of a deal about that. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, notes are only permissible in a very narrow sense. You can't just walk in as a witness and read off a piece of paper. Uh, that paper could have been handed to the witness by anybody. It could be a completely fabricated account. The whole point of having a human being as a witness and not just a piece of paper is the witness is supposed to testify from their actual memory. And then the human being can be subject to uh, cross-examination, to impeachment, to an evaluation of their credibility. Can't do anything like that to a piece of paper. So there always has to be a human being there. Now, you can use notes to refresh your recollection if you can't remember a detail. You look at the note, refresh your recollection about a date or something specific like that, and then you put the note down and you continue to testify from your memory. You can't simply read your testimony off a piece of paper. Also, the note's supposed to be disclosed to all the parties. So the defense should have had the note so they can research what's on there and determine whether or not it's true or not true and come to court um, being informed about what they're likely to face from the witness. That's the, the defense and the state are privileged to have that exposure to the note beforehand. Of course, the defense clearly had never seen the note before. I, I doubt the state had seen the note. I think this witness just did this on their own. Um, and for whatever reason, Nelson, uh, the, the defense counsel, Nelson, chose not to make a big deal of it, except to ask the witness only to use it to refresh their recollection. How many judges, or excuse me, how many attorneys does the prosecution have involved in this case? Uh, it's it's somewhere around 10 or 12. How many does the defense attorney one, have? Uh, at his, uh, one. Just, just one guy? Just one guy and an assistant. Ah, so two against 12. That should be very interesting. Yeah, I would I, I, I would just clarify. I don't believe the assistant's an attorney, so... Um, I, I, I think the assistant is there to help keep evidence in order and notes in order and things along those lines. So it's really 10 or 12. I, I guarantee you, well, I shouldn't say I guarantee you, I would be willing to bet lunch uh, that any one of those prosecuting attorneys' uh, annual income is a multiple of what the defense counsel gets by themselves. Uh, and of course, the entire group or 10 or 12 can completely um, swamps the defense in terms of the resources they can bring to the table. And by the way, that's very likely a strategic uh, plan on the part of the prosecution to overwhelm the defense. Sure. I'm sure Keith Ellison had that in mind when he decided that the local prosecutor wouldn't take over and then just uh, stack the deck against the defense. It, it would seem likely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, in our few remaining moments, the jury pool here, or the jury that was seated. It seems rather young, and it always kind of uh, it reminds me of, you know, there's an environmental guy on there and all kinds of things. And I'm kind of wondering, um, what kind of jury do you think this is? Well, I'm hoping it's a reasonable jury, by which I mean not that they'll go for a particular verdict. I should mention up front, by the way, of course, I don't know what actually happened either, right? I don't know if there should be... Uh, in any kind of moral sense, a guilty or not guilty verdict here for Chauvin. All I can do is, like anybody else can do, is look at the evidence, look at the law. Uh, right now, when I do that, it appears uh, much more strongly aligned with a not guilty verdict than a guilty verdict, but that's not a personal preference on my part. 
Uh, all any of us can do is keep an open mind, be unbiased, be impartial, listen to the evidence presented in court, uh, listen to the law as the judge will instruct the jury, apply the law to the facts, and come up with a reasonable verdict. I'm hoping this jury will do so. Certainly there were many members of the jury pool um, who would not have been able to do that. Uh, it was very clear to me. Some of them just told the court explicitly, I cannot be fair and impartial, and they were excused. Uh, others, uh, the only reasonable interpretation of their voir dire, of their um, process through jury selection, when they said they could be fair and impartial, uh, was that they were lying. I mean, many of them had protested, carried signs, no justice, wow. no peace, uh, were absolutely emotionally invested in the conviction of uh, Derek Chauvin. That's not justice, folks. Those people may as well just take them out to a pile of wood, pour gas on it, and burn the guy at the stake. Is the fact that there was no change of venue an appealable offense or an appealable point? Well, anything can be appealed. Uh, is it likely to be successful? Uh, probably not. I mean, the truth is, I think the judge was right in saying uh, that it's likely that there's no place anywhere in Minnesota that would not be exposed uh, has not been exposed to this year's worth of propaganda in this case. Uh, I think it probably it might have helped a little bit to have been moved to the far side of the state, wherever that might be. I'm not all that familiar with Minnesota. Uh, it wouldn't have hurt the defendant, that's for sure. Uh, but, you know, courts don't like to change venue unless there's a really compelling argument for it. And the compelling argument against it is, well, you're still in Minnesota. It's not like they could change venue to uh, you know, Colorado, where I live, that wasn't going to happen. The jurisdiction stays within the state. And was there anywhere in the state where the it was really going to be much different? It, the judge wasn't saying, hey, this is awesome and fine, and he's pleased with uh, the media publicity about this case, the news of the settlement on the eve uh, while jury selection was taking place. The judge was very unhappy about all of that. He wished it hadn't happened. It would be a fairer <laughs> trial without it. But it happened, and it's everywhere. So there's really seems, at least to the judge, to be no way to get away from it. It seems like they're just sort of pi piling on the uh, former officer, uh, obviously. I mean, I'm just stating the obvious, but some people may not actually know that. Uh, the assessment of letting in the information about Floyd's previous arrest in which he seemed to run the same game that he was in the caught on the camera by the cops, the um, the camera worn by the cops in which he starts throwing a wing ding, basically, and trying to hide evidence. Is, is that compelling, do you think? Yeah, well, there's a lot of different dynamics there. And I, I think what most people believe when they hear that's being admitted is that it's being admitted to show this kind of pattern of behavior that he's done it before. That's not why it's being admitted. Much of that prior video will not be offered as evidence. Only very small portions of it will be. Uh, one of those portions, for example, is on the technical question of uh, whether or not Floyd himself would be aware that ingesting all these drugs could likely kill him, uh, mm -hmm. causes death. Uh, the prior incident uh, would lead us to believe that he did know because when he ingested the drugs in that instance, the, the paramedic or EMS uh, medical personnel told him, hey, listen, your blood pressure is through the roof. You're likely to die. We have to take you to a hospital. And that would mean that, for example, Floyd did not ingest the pills by accident um, or without knowing what the risk was. He knew he was risking death when he took those pills. So it's for those kinds of ancillary reasons that that, that prior event video is being admitted. It's not to show uh, some kind of a pattern of behavior or a modus operandi, which is what I think most people believe it is being admitted yeah. for. That's, that's not the case. Interesting. 
and they took him to the hospital whereupon he was declared dead, or I can't remember where he was. Well, this would, this would be the first event. So the first event, of course, obviously he didn't die because he was around right. for the, the second event. So uh, they took I'm him to the hospital and he was, uh, you know, treated and he survived and he went on to, you know, live his life until case. he ran up into the second event. In this case... Um, you know, he was unconscious at the scene. Uh, there was an angry crowd. They basically threw him in the ambulance and drove without treating him there because they were afraid of the crowd, presumably. They drove a short distance away to a place of safety and started treating him there, brought him to the hospital. Uh, frankly, I'm a little unclear on when the exact moment of death was. Sometimes it's even hard to tell from medical certificates because we, we just don't know. I'm presuming for purposes of analysis that he died on the street uh, at the intersection because that's the worst case scenario for the defense. Uh, and if the defense can overcome that scenario, well, you know, then they've overcome the worst case. All right, Andrew Branca, legal insurrection and law of self-defense. Thanks again. Appreciate it. And you know I'm going to get Andrew Branca on in the Michael Strickland, Antifa versus Mike Strickland case, because this is all about that particular case and others like it are all about the dissipation of self-defense in the United States. So watch that space as well. We'll keep you updated on the Chauvin trial as well. Woo! April Fool's joke, which I know for some of you has already passed when you're listening to this. But April Fool's joke, uh, we're looking for a dog trainer for Joe Biden's dogs. And it's over $100,000 a year. Uh, April Fool's. And it's only because Joe Biden's dogs, his so-called rescue dogs, just because you rescued a dog and they call it rescuing dogs doesn't make you a hero. It makes you a nice person. And I'm very happy you've done that. But can we just get over the rescue stuff? I don't know. It's just it just sticks in my craw. Yeah, it's all right. I don't I don't spend time on it. I don't let it keep me up at night. It's just one of those. It's like up talking. It's just an annoyance. It's just an annoyance. Anyway, so Joe Biden's dogs bit bunch of people, I guess, two or three times. Now, this is after he got sent back to Delaware for some reason. Um, And now he's back in the White House and still biting people. Also, uh, the White House staff reports that there's been dog poop uh, in the in the White House. (laughs) Are you sure it's not Joe's? Because I mean, uh, come on. You just never know. He's looking a little sheepish. Yeah. Unfair. Not very nice. Not very charitable. Anyway, I will see you next week on the Adult in the Room podcast. Here's how to get in touch with me, Victoria at VictoriaTaft.com, like the big fat president. And um, let's see how else. Ah, VictoriaTaft.com is where you can get all the podcast episodes and more information on the Mike Strickland trial, as well as other important information that we share with you on a weekly basis, daily, if not daily basis. All right. So we'll see you next time. Remember to subscribe, follow, rate five stars, and give me a great review over at your favorite podcast outlets, Apple, Google, and Spotify, to name the big boys. And follow me on social media. I'm over at Parlor, MeWe, Minds, Facebook, and Twitter, at Victoria Taft. Don't forget the Adult in the Room podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the Adult in the Room podcast, except Twitter only has room for the Adult in the, Adult in the, at Adult in the. It works. Get in touch with me at Victoria at VictoriaTaft.com. Editing, mastering, advertising, technical support, and understanding. 
for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. The music is gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for the case of Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by RC, and it is used by permission. Find RC on all social sites at Raps by RC, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram at Raps by RC. Imaging for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. Logo by Hageman Creative. Find him on Instagram. Photo of Victoria Taft is by Hilly Collective. The Adult in the Room podcast is produced by Flamingo Road Studios. All rights reserved.